Isn't it interesting? Just, I just couldn't help noticing as we were singing that song. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And both the verses begin perfect submission, perfect delight, perfect submission, all is at rest. Isn't it absolutely true that we know assurance from God when we submit to God? But when we wrestle and buck against what God is doing, then we lose our assurance, don't we? Yeah, it's a great song. Anyways, I don't know what Poovin announced about what I was going to preach on tonight. I had in the bullet, and he didn't announce anything. He knows me well because he knows how much I quickly change things. So I had in the bulletin or in the, the lead sheet thing, Hosea 14. But I decided this afternoon when I got back from uh, where I was this morning and just thinking about some of the things going on in our church and... and uh, what would be an appropriate message? I'm going to bring a message that I brought uh, 2018. So what's that, five years ago when I first began here? But it just seemed to fit with some things that are going on and some, um, some struggles I'm having in my own life. You know, I'm, I'm just like you. I struggle as much as everybody else does. And so this to me and the, the message I, I brought this morning, I brought when preached from Isaiah 6. And just the vision of the glorified Lord was such a, uh, what's the word, a tonic, I guess, or a, a soothing balm for my soul to again see the Lord in his glory. And so I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 41. Isaiah 41, and we're going to read verses uh, 8 to 14 of Isaiah 41. Actually, you know what? We're going to read from verse 5. Just back up a couple of verses. And Isaiah writes, and he says, The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and have come. Each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. So the the craftsman encourages the smelter, and he who smooths metal with the hammer encourages him who beats the anvil, saying of the soldering, It's good. And he fastens it with nails that it should not totter. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from the remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, surely I will help you, surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all those who are angered at you will be shamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and they will perish. You will seek those who quarrel with you but will not find them. Those who war with you will be as nothing and non-existent. For I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand, who says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. Do not fear, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Let's pray again, shall we, this this evening. Loving Father, again, as we come before your word, and it's open to us, Father, we pray for a work of the Holy Spirit in each of our lives. Father, we pray that you would take these wonderful words of Scripture that you 
inspired through the pen of Isaiah so many years ago. And Father, we pray that you would apply them as a soothing balm. Father, as a tonic for our souls, to encourage, to strengthen, to lift us up. Father, we pray that you would apply these words each to us, to each of us, according to our need and our situation. And Lord, it's easy at times to bury the hurts and the troubles and the discouragements and disappointments. But Father, they quickly rise again. So Father, we pray that we would deal with those things in the light of Scripture. We would respond to you by faith, trusting in you, knowing that you have everything in control. Father, we ask you for your blessing and we ask you for your help this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Isaiah is writing in the 8th century uh, B.C. before Christ came, and he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and his overall message throughout the book is that God saves his people. God is the central theme of the book, and God is repeatedly described all through the book as the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah spends the first 39 chapters describing God's coming judgment. And then in chapter 40, Isaiah changes tone and changes almost direction as he begins to speak of comfort and assurance. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, he says in Isaiah chapter 40. In Isaiah 40, God promises hope for the exiles through his unlimited power over all things. And he promises hope for those who endure difficulties while waiting on him. And in chapter 41, God reminds them that they are not alone. He alone is guiding all events in human history for his glory and for their good. In our passage, Isaiah 41, verses 8 to 10, God through Isaiah's pen gives five great promises based on the foundation of his past work in their lives, and as we'll see in our lives also. So the question might be, why do we need to hear this message? Why this message tonight? Because some of us are facing huge trials and struggles. Some of us are facing financial crises and health crises. Some of us are facing great challenges to our faith. And and to be perfectly frank, let's face it, all of us are always facing struggles and challenges and difficulties. It's simply part of the fallen human experience, isn't it? We seem to go from one struggle to the next. In fact, we always always base our life story on one struggle that we got through, and we saw how the Lord led us and helped us and got us through that one, and then the next one, the next one, and so on. It's simply part of our fallen human experience. We need to be reminded of God's everlasting love. We need to be reminded of God's abiding presence with us, his unwavering faithfulness to us, and God's steady strengthening of us. And we need to be reminded, but while there's reasons to fear, God's presence with us removes those fears. Uh, what did the psalmist say in Psalm uh, 23? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Or to put it another way, I will not fear evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. That's the reason why I don't have to fear anymore. Yeah, there's fears there, there's reasons to fear, but the fact that God is with us removes that fear and gives us courage. We need to be reminded of five great promises that we must trust God to keep as he's already keeping them for us. So I want to set before us this evening three things. 
I don't know what it is about three things in sermons. Everybody has to have three points in a sermon. I think you, you don't pass Bible school until you preach all your sermons, three points, and that's it. But three points, of which the last one will have those five uh, great promises. So first of all, God's people, whose we are, God's work, what he has done, and God's present promises, what he is doing, and that's the five promises. So notice, first of all, in the text, God's people, who we are, whose we are. We are God's people who trust him. Notice in in verse 8, the text describes the recipients of the message, and there's the original recipients. He talks about Israel, my servant, Jacob, who was chosen, and he also talks about the descendants of Abraham. In simple language, the initial recipients of the text and the promises are the exiled Judahites, But notice that Isaiah extends the scope of recipients and he describes them as the descendants of Abraham. The recipients are those who exercise the same faith that Abraham did. If you go to the book Galatians in chapter 3 and verse 7, Paul writes, Be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Paul describes those who trust in God the way that Abraham did as Abraham's descendants, his spiritual children in the faith. And that's you and I. In Genesis 12, Abraham heard the promises of God. In Genesis 15, Abraham believed in God. And one of the most pivotal verses in the whole Old Testament, he believed God and it was credited to him or accounted to him as righteousness. That's the crux of all of Paul's theology as he writes the book of Romans. In fact, Paul uses Romans to describe Abraham's faith and righteousness. He says in Romans 4, 19 to 21, that Abraham, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And listen, being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. How did he have insurance? Assurance? Not insurance, assurance. He had assurance because he was submitted to God's will. He wasn't looking at Sarah saying, you know, uh, my dear lovely wife is just getting a little uh, mature in her years and she's not able to have any children anymore. He didn't look at himself and say, you know, uh, things are starting to sag and droop in directions I didn't want them never to and now they are and I'm getting old. He didn't have all these arguments built up in his mind as about how God couldn't keep his promises. The exact opposite. He did not consider his own body. He looked to God and said, God is able to keep his promises. His submission to God's will, like we were singing, fit perfectly. He had that assurance because he was submitted to God's will. And brothers and sisters, if we, like Abraham, hear God's promises through his word, and if we, like Abraham, trust in God who is able to keep his promises, then we share in the faith of Abraham, and we are of faith. Therefore, we are the sons and daughters of Abraham. Faith is trusting God who is able to keep his promises. Meanwhile, back in our text, when we see Isaiah speaking about Abraham's descendants, God is graciously including us in those promises. 
No, they may not have been specifically written to us, but in the sovereign wisdom of God and God's sovereign plan throughout all the ages, we became recipients of those as well. So we are God's people who trust in him. And we're also God's people for his possession. Notice in verses 8 and 9, look at all the uh, personal pronouns he uses. He says that you, Israel, my servant. And he says, uh, descendant of Abraham, my friend. And he says in verse 9 again, he says, you are my servant. That's the personal possessive pronoun, mine. We are God's people possessed by God. In 1 Peter 2 verse 9, speaking to Gentile believers, Peter says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession with a purpose, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are God's people purchased by Christ's blood for his possession. <laughs> you know, there are some truths that you sometimes you, you read over them and you just hear them so often and, and it's almost like Christian phraseology. You know, you get so used to saying those Christian phrases and comments that they almost lose their impact. We are his people. Brothers and sisters, take some time to stop and meditate and think on what that means. We belong to him. He is our God, and we're going to see at the end that we, he is our God, and we are his people. There was a purpose that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, where God's people purchased by Christ's blood for his possession. God possesses us by filling us with his Holy Spirit at the moment of our belief, and we're individually the temple of the Holy Spirit who fills us. And we're also corporately, the gathering of God's people is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He's here amongst us, moving amongst us, applying the word, bringing out fear, bringing out uh, repentance, bringing out faith, drawing out worship from our hearts as he moves amongst us in our worship service. We're God's people to worship and serve him. Notice he says in verse 8 again, But you, Israel, my servant, they serve God. And literally what it means in the Old Testament language is they worship God. And we worship God. These church services, we, we often talk about service all the time. And you kind of wonder how it is that service, because we all come together and, and most of us sit down for a better part of two hours and a couple do all the running around. And I don't mind because I happen to do, enjoy my part. But how is it a service? What does that mean? It means it's a service of worship to the Lord. We are his possession that we might proclaim the excellencies of God. When you're singing, you're proclaiming the excellencies of God. One of the reasons why we're careful about what we sing is so that when we sing, it is in fact biblical truth. It's strong theological truth that we are proclaiming to each other. And not only does each one get ministered to, but we also minister to the Lord's heart as we do reflect and display the Son and the truth of the Son back to the Father. We offer God's spiritual sacrifices as worship, we worship by prayer, by praising God in word and song, by giving time and money, by witnessing. We worship God through the ministry of his word. 
We worship God as living sacrifices to God all through every day of our lives. If you think that you worship just when you're sitting in this room, you misunderstood. You know what the Bible says? Did anybody here have life verses anymore? Does that? When we were kids, we all had a life verse. It was that verse that you just hung on to. That was your one favorite great verse in the Bible. Well, when I was a teenager and we were dating and getting married, we all were talking about life verses. And this was one of mine. Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, in other words, to present your whole lives as living and holy sacrifices acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We are God's people to worship, not just when we're at church on Sunday, but in every part of our lives, riding the bus, at work, dropping the kids off at school, uh, going to the the bowling game or whatever it is we do for fun, and uh, going golfing, if you can try and mix golfing and worship. I'm not sure if that's possible, but that's just me. But we do it in every part of our lives, don't we? That's what worship's about. We're also God's people who love him. In verse 8, it says that Abraham was the friend of God. The word for friend means that Abraham loved and cared for God. Abraham trusted and loved God as his friend. We believe in God and we love God. And we respond to his everlasting love to us. So the people to whom God is speaking to includes us. We are a people who are trusting God as Abraham did. We're a people for his own possession, filled with the Holy Spirit. We're a people who live to worship and serve him. And we're his people who love him. So which demands a question, doesn't it? Do we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? And every single one of us, if we're honest, will say no. I'd like to love the Lord God with all my heart and all my mind and all my strength. And I'm striving and I'm growing in that. And one day when this work in me is finished and I'm caught up to be with the Lord Jesus Christ for all of eternity, then I'll be able to love him with every part of all my faculties. That's, that's what God has done in us. We are God's people. That's who we are. We belong to somebody else. We're not our own. We don't have the right and freedom to make those decisions on our own because we don't belong to ourselves anymore. This life is under new management. It's under the management and control of the Lord my God, the Lord our God. Notice, secondly, God's past work. His past work is the reassurance for his future promises. God first gives us four foundations for believing God's promises. And those four foundations are the past works of God in us and for us. And all of God's work toward us are his magnificent grace to us. I was sharing uh, this morning in the uh, Grace Community Bible Church that there's Isaiah on the floor of the temple. And he's heard and seen the, the vision of the glorified Lord. He's heard the voice of the seraphim. And he says, ruined. Woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I said, you know, it's wonderful. God, without a word, dispatches a seraphim who stops praising and flies to the altar with a pair of tongs and takes a coal off and flies back and plies it to Abraham's, not Abraham, Isaac, Isaiah's lips. This has touched your lips. 
Your iniquity is atoned for. Your sin is forgiven. And it's all grace. It's all the magnificent grace of God toward us. Brothers and sisters, like I said a moment ago, some of those great theological, biblical truths that we love so much, but we get so used to talking about and so used to using the terms and phrases that we forget the great significance of them. Grace. Unearned, unearnable favor of God. The kindness of God given to us. I want you to notice a couple of things about God's gracious work toward us. He says in verse 9 that he chose us. Look what it says in the last line of verse 9. I have chosen you and not rejected you. That's God's election summarized. That's God's work for us from before the foundation of the world. In Ephesians 1 verse 4, it says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. God chose you. That's no grounds for you to boast. It's no grounds for us to worship ourselves and think, wow, I'm pretty special because God chose me. No, God is gracious and he chose you. Nothing compelled God to do that. He did it simply because he loved you, because he loved you, because he loved you. That's it. But he chose us. Notice, secondly, God's past work toward us. He says um, he took us. He says uh, in verse number 9, um, I have chosen you and not rejected you. Sorry, in verse, the verse part of verse 9, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth. Literally, the idea is to seize or grasp or compel us. God's election is enacted by God himself. God actively brings his people together into his church. In John 6, verse 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And the word, idea behind the word draw means to pull a heavy object up and out with great effort involved. It's God who chooses us. It's God who takes us and pulls us out of the world and brings us to himself. It's God who seeks and gathers us and brings us into his fold. He's the active agent in bringing about our election, bringing it to reality. He chose us. He took us. And in verse 9, again, God's past work is to call us. He said, I've called you. It means he has proclaimed and preached to us the gospel. God has called to us through the preaching of the gospel. And we make the gospel call to anybody who will listen. The problem is not everybody answers. So is God's calling effective or not? And the answer is in those who are his elect, yes, the call of God is effective. It's effectual to bring us to himself. The very call of God to repent and believe to those of us who are chosen of God imparts the power, the ability to respond. His command to obey imparts the strength to do the obeying. Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 and 14, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel. God's call is an effective call. It compels what it commands. And that's why the preaching of the gospel is so important. I got a phone call from one of the young men this week, and they've been talking about uh, predestination and gospel preaching in one of their studies. And he said, I don't get it. If God predestines everybody who's going to be saved, why do we preach the gospel? 
He said, I get it that, you know, we're supposed to obey God and God says preach the gospel. And I said, well, that's one really good reason. It's probably reason enough. But you know what? The other half of the reason is that the faith comes through the preaching of the word. So as we preach the word, the faith is aroused. It is, in a sense, given by God to those who are going to believe. And that effective call happens and God imparts faith and the spirit makes us alive. And we're all able to respond at that moment, those who are his chosen. It's God's past work in us to call us. It's also, in verse 9, God's past work in irrevocably loving us. He says, I've chosen you and not rejected you. God's love is an everlasting, irrevocable covenant love. In Jeremiah 31 and verse 3, the Bible says, The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. God's love is an unchanging, undying, everlasting love. He is the unchangeable God. You know, brothers and sisters, you want to spend some time just in awe and wonder of God. Stop to consider the love of God that was displayed towards each of us. Tremendous love. You know, as Hosea 14, which we're not going to go to tonight, but I was looking at that last night and thinking about, you know, God's work of, and the blessings of uh, repentance that he bestows on the people of Israel. He talks in verse uh, Hosea 14 and verse um, 4 and 5, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger is turned away from them. We know that's only in the death of Christ. And he goes on to say, I will be like dew to Israel. That's an amazing picture. Like the fresh glistening dew that hits all the flowers and the grass and the trees. And you get up early in the morning and that's refreshing moist layer that lays upon the flowers and lays upon the grass. It's the whole idea of renewal and refreshment for the people. He says, I'm going to love you freely. Not love under compulsion, not love because it's duty, because God loves with an everlasting love. These are the foundation things that Isaiah is giving us as the basis for these five great promises we're going to look at. He loves us with an irrevocable love. God's love is the the love of the unchangeable God. God's love will not ever end or die off. It won't fade or change or diminish. In James 1 verse 17, the Bible says that every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with him there, with whom there is no variation nor shifting shadow. God's love for you does not change. And that's something to go home and think about, isn't it? God's love doesn't change. You know, sometimes our love is really fickle, isn't it? Somebody cuts us off, somebody swerves, our, our partner does the thing that we wish they wouldn't do again for the 58th time this week, and, and, and our love gets a little bit strained, and the conversation gets a little cold and quiet around the kitchen. Our love for our kids is great until they once again leave the door open with the, the heater on and the cold air blasting in and we get a little bit irritated and frustrated and somehow our love is a little bit fickle. It shifts back and forth. But even when we struggle and even when our faith begins to flag and even when our devotion, our commitment, our obedience begins to flag back a little bit, to fail a little bit, God's love does not change. What a basis for hope we have. 
an unchangeable love. So God has chosen us to be his people. He's called us to the preaching of the gospel. He's brought us to himself to be his people for his own possession. God has chosen us never to reject us. We are absolutely secure as God's people. And those past works of God that Isaiah lists are the foundation for the five great promises. And I want you to see them in Isaiah 41 and verse 10. And he says, do not fear for I am with you. That's number one. For I Do not anxiously look about you, sorry, for I am your God. That's number two. He says, I will strengthen you, number three. Surely I will help you, number four. Surely I will uphold you, number five, with my righteous right hand. Five great promises. Five great pillars when things are going bad. Five great security blankets, if you like, when things aren't going the way they should. Five great pillars to lean on as we follow Christ through this life. Five great pillars from when we walk into the doctor's office. And five great pillars when our great promises, when our financial world collapses. Five great promises when our relationships are torn apart. Five great promises to sustain us when our health fails. And I'm going to add this. Five great promises we need when everything is going really well. Isn't it interesting when things aren't going bad, we go looking for the promises of God? But you know, we need them when things are going well, too. And they don't fail. They don't change when things are going well or things are going poorly. God's promises stand. The God who makes these promises, the God of promises, is the God of the Bible. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, and unchanging. He's just and holy and righteous. He makes and keeps His promises. Can you imagine that day when Abraham and Sarah... Send the word out, Sarah's pregnant. You can see all the other ladies in the camp going, okay, yeah, sure, I guess, maybe. And then the day when all of a sudden that little bump began to grow in front, and then all of a sudden everybody realizing, wait a minute, she is pregnant. She's having a baby. She's 80-whatever years of age that she was, and this baby is growing inside of her. God keeps his promises. The day when John saw the Lord Jesus walking along the beach, And he pointed and cried out, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And those who knew and understood the Old Testament would have said, There it is. God keeps his promises. The God who is making these promises, he makes them and keeps them. He loves us. He chooses us. He saves us and cleanses us. He seals us and fills us with his Holy Spirit. And he never leaves us nor nor fails us. God keeps his promises, and God will never fail you nor forsake you. Let's look at these five. He says, first of all, I'm with you. Notice in verse 10, do not fear, for I am with you. God promises his abiding presence with us. It's the same promise that God made throughout the scriptures. He promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses, I'm with you. He promised Joshua and David, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Zerubbabel, I'm with you. And repeatedly throughout Scripture, God promises, I'm with you. Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, at the moment of his departure, said, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. The God who promises to be with us is God who is omnipresent. He's always everywhere present. We need never fear that God is too busy somewhere else to be with us wherever it is we're going. We need never fear that God will depart and leave us on our own. He's with us. 
God is never too busy elsewhere that he cannot be with us. God who cannot lie, who is unchangeable, who loves us with an everlasting love. God who chose us and saved us and forgave us and filled us with his spirit. God who calls and sends us into his vineyard to do his work. This same God has promised that he is always with us. Notice secondly, he says, I am your God. Notice in verse 10, the basis for our not being dismayed and anxiously looking around us is that he is our God. God promises his unwavering faithfulness to his people. We belong to God and he possesses us. We've been called and irrevocably adopted into his family. God is our heavenly father. Do not fear for he is our God. He is all knowing. God knows all things, past, present, future, possible, actual. In Psalm 147, verses 4 to 5, God counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Have you ever stopped and think about that? How many stars are there? What's the latest guesstimation? Hundreds of billions? Would that be a reasonable estimate? Trillions, hundreds of trillions? Probably more, right? And not meaning to be irreverent, but can you see the angel in heaven saying, did you get that one? Yeah, that's Roger. Did you get that one? Yeah, that's Paul. What about that one over there? Well, that's Fred. It doesn't matter. He had them all named. He knew every single one of them. That's the scope of the knowledge of our God. What's that mean for us? We have no reason to fear because God knows every single thing that's going on in our lives. He knows exactly where he's taking you. And the struggles you're going through are not because God has left you, because the whole thing is going pear-shaped to throw you off your faith. In fact, God is going with you through that valley for a really good purpose. He wants to bring you through it so that going through it will shape you and make you more like the Lord Jesus. We've all been there, haven't we? We've all been in the middle of that valley. I mean, tempted to think, where is God in all this? Has God forgotten about me? Is God busy elsewhere? Listen, imagine you walk into a room and you see a man who looks a little crazy. and He's holding a knife in one hand and you immediately begin to fear. What am I doing with a, in a room with a guy with a knife? Until you suddenly realize that rolling along beside you is a Sherman tank with a tw- 50 millimeter cannon sticking out the front of it. And the guy with a knife all of a sudden isn't so alarming, is he? Because you realize a 50 millimeter cannon that hit that guy in the chest at 10 paces, there won't be much of him left. You know, brothers and sisters, every time we walk into a circumstance, every valley we go through, we go through with the living God walking right along beside of us. He knows everything. He knows what he's doing. He knows where he's taking you. He knows what he has in mind for you. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. Don't anxiously look around you, for I am your God. Even that phrase, your God. We belong to him. And beloved, he belongs to us. He is our God. Do not fear, for our, he is our God. He knows all. He is our God, and he is all-powerful. 
Jeremiah 32 and verse 17, Jeremiah writes, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. There's nothing outside of his power or strength or ability to do. We have reason to anxiously look about us, but we need not. We have reasons to fear, but we need not, for he is our God. Nothing happens to us that God does not approve of. Nothing happens to us that God does not already know about. God knows that we fear, and he reminds us of his presence. He knows we're anxiously looking, so he reminds us of his deity, his unwavering faithfulness to be our God. He has the knowledge and power to keep all his promises. We are the object of his love and grace. He is the object of our love, our faith, and our worship. He is the one to whom we must cry out to for help. Listen, whatever God is taking you through, and I don't know what it is. Some of you are facing huge challenges. And I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen on the far side. I haven't got a clue. I'm not omniscient, but I praise God that he is. I don't know if I'm going to walk out that door and not make it home tonight. I have no idea. Not to freak out my wife or nothing, but I don't. Not a clue. i never forget going to work on a Monday morning, and there was a young man whose name was, uh, we, we called him Potsy. Don't, don't ask me why we called him Potsy. Probably from that uh, Happy Days show back in the 70s. And he was kind of a goofy guy, and I'll never forget going into work, and Potsy never showed up for work. And we thought, that's kind of weird. He's a really faithful guy. He's always on time. He's kind of goofy and all the rest of it. And then we heard that there was a young man on his motorcycle on Saturday night driving down a road, and a taxi cab came out of a side street. Taxi cab was totally in the wrong. Hit him square in the side of the bike, knocked him 60 feet down the road, and he died on the sidewalk. Not a clue. He didn't know what was going to happen that night, but God knew. And I have no idea what's going to happen in your life, but I know for an absolute certainty that God has everything in control. He's taking you where he's taking you for his purposes. Whatever you're going to go through in the next little while, God has a plan and a purpose in it. I assure you of that. I don't know what it is, but I know what what God's word says is absolutely true and trustworthy. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I'll strengthen you. You don't have to worry about having the strength to cope with whatever's coming. God will give you the strength. All we need to do is, like the song said, perfect submission, all is at rest. That's the assurance of God's faith. When we submit to what he is taking us through, whatever that may be, he says, I'll help you. Isn't that a marvelous thing? You ever been somewhere? I got a stupid illustration, but it's getting late. So I was here on Thursday, I guess it was. And my truck had been starting a little odd. You get into it and it would go, and then it would start. And I thought, oh, it's just a bit cold, you know. And so I go out there and I try and start it, and nothing, just flat like a tack. 
And so I called up Rod, and my faithful get-me-out-of-places kind of sidekick over at Village Church, and he comes trucking over, and he's got this little jumper kit, and he starts to help me. And I, I would have been absolutely stuck. I would have had to call Jonathan maybe to drive all the way from Packenham all the way over here with his car to jump the leads and all that stuff. And he came over to help. And, you know, he doesn't have a, he, he's not the most brilliant guy in the world. Don't tell him I said that. He, he's a lovely guy. We're, we're the same. But he came alongside to help. And he just put his arm figuratively around my shoulders. And I put my arm around his shoulders. And he helped me. And we figured out the truck. And then we had a coffee and a good chat. And it was really good. And brothers and sisters, you've been in those moments. We've all been there. And we're stuck and we're wrestling. We don't know what we're going to do. And someone comes alongside and puts their hand in our hand and begins to walk alongside us and they begin to pull us along the road a little further and they give us that little bit of help that we need at that moment. And here we have God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, unchangeable, who loves us with an everlasting love. And he says, listen, you're my people. I am your God. Don't look anxiously about you. I will help you. I will walk with you through this and help you get to the far side. I will, surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Oh, brothers and sisters, what a great passage. Five great promises in a simple verse of Scripture. I might have told you before, but I came across the verse because John Piper apparently memorized this. And as he went over to uh, Munich to do his Ph.D. in the University of Munich, and all the classes, all the studies were all in German. And here he is with a South Carolina accent and twang, and he had to learn German. And every day as he went to classes, he would memorize and he would quote this verse in German to help him memorize. He said this verse was like a rock in, alongside of him. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He carries on. He, he continues the same thoughts in verse 13. For I am the Lord your God. Who upholds you with your upholds your right hand, sorry, who says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. Do not fear, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. What a great God we serve. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to close in prayer and we'll be done for the evening. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give thanks this evening for those tremendous words. Do not fear, for I am with you. Father, we give thanks that in submission to you, in submission to your will, there is rest. There is a great assurance of our salvation, of the comfort of our God with us. Father, we thank you for those tremendous words. I'm with you. Father, we give thanks that no matter how deep and dark and long the valley of the shadow of death may be, you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. And Father, again, I have no idea what is facing each of us in this room. 
Father, we look around us and the, and the times seem uncertain. Economics and politics just seem to be shouting uncertainty and fear and worry. And yet, O oh God, we stand here as the people of the living God, those who have the faith of Abraham, those who are included as the descendants of Abraham, those who are your people for your possession, a people to declare and proclaim the praises of the God who has saved us. And Father, we have no reason to fear this evening because you are with us. We need not look anxiously around us for you are our God. Father, I cry out to you for everyone in this church, Lord, and for those especially here tonight. Father, I pray that you would give them great comfort from these texts, from these words. Father, I pray that you would do what none of us can do for them, abiding with them 24 hours a day, giving them the strength and the hope of your presence. Lord, for whatever each of us must face, Lord, we thank you that we don't face it alone. Father, we give thanks that there is a tremendous hope beyond this life. There's a great hope that one day when this life is over, when, when faith gives way to sight and we see the Lord Jesus Christ, the assurance we have now will turn into sight, face-to-face encounter with a living God, caught up to be like Jesus, the work in us completed in a moment, face-to-face with him for all of eternity to sing his praises and enjoy his presence. Father, we give thanks. Thank you, O God, for you are good. You are great and greatly to be praised. Father, dismiss us now with your blessing, we pray, and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.